Let's take a look at what's happening with COVID cases in BC with immunization rates and what that tells us about where we are right now and how things are going to look in the weeks and possibly months to come. Caroline Colain is joining me now, SFU professor and Canada 150 research chair in mathematics for infection, evolution and public health. Caroline, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Good afternoon. Uh, I know you've been tracking this throughout the pandemic, looking at those numbers. What are your thoughts? We'll start off first with immunization rates and where we are with that in BC. What are your modeling numbers telling you? So the immunization numbers, we you know that, that's from data, and I think we are over 80% of eligible adults or eligible people in BC having had at least a first dose and somewhere in the 50s, maybe in hitting 60% n- nearly of uh with second doses, which is great, but of course that varies from um, region to region, and it also eighty percent isn't a hundred percent. So there's quite a few um, people who haven't been protected at all by vaccination yet. What are your thoughts on the numbers that Dr. Henry talked about when they said there were roughly about a million British Columbians who, for whatever reason, still hadn't been immunized, still hadn't gotten that first shot, but also said. In that number, it's a small percentage that are adamant and won't get the shot, that it's more people that, for whatever reason, just haven't done it. Does that give you some uh, hope, or can we look at those numbers and then anticipate that we'll get a higher vaccination level? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, so important to recognize that and to really think think about how we can get access to vaccines and access to good information about vaccines to answer people's questions about, you know, mRNA vaccines as a new technology, about their safety and really about their benefit. And, you know, unfortunately, as we reopen, we're increasing the risk of COVID exposure because we're having that social contact that we haven't been having for much of the last 18 months. And with that contact comes, of course, the risk that introductions could take off. And that puts people who haven't been vaccinated at much higher risk. Uh, What are your thoughts on the regional approach we're now seeing? Because we haven't seen that before as far as restrictions and trying to really get those numbers back down when looking at a hot spot like the central Okanagan and really targeting that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it, it is a big shift in B.C. in the policy. And I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, we really don't want to go back into province level measures, you know, where we think hopefully there's enough vaccination in, you know, out there that that even if we did have introductions, they're not landing in that dry forest of completely susceptible uh, people without that protection. So I think that that's probably part of, you know, why we, we have vaccination. It's the best tool we have to get out of the pandemic. We're committed to using it to get out of the pandemic. And so we don't want to be saying, OK, like there's an outbreak or there's a rise in transmission in a particular location. So we, we're going to shut down the whole province. It is a big shift. And I hope that it works and I hope that it's done. It sounds like they're really doing this, like like together with a big effort to, to make vaccines accessible, to get information about vaccines accessible. And I hope people will see this as, you know, okay, like an awareness of risk that if we're not vaccinated, we're at much higher risk of COVID. And COVID can be serious in any age group, most serious in the elderly, but it can have really serious impacts for anyone. 
Do you shift then how you look at numbers or which numbers we focus on in that in the beginning, we were obviously focusing on the number of cases and how those were rising, how fast they were rising. As we do get people vaccinated, though, and even uh, those breakthrough cases or if people with one dose are getting this virus, but it's not as serious, is the shift now not just from the all the all of the numbers, all of the cases, does the shift go to hospitalizations, people in the ICU and looking at that part of it? Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, you know, vaccination is going to change and has changed the relationship between cases and hospitalizations. And if what our policies are going to do is, is really try to protect the healthcare system, which is kind of what we've been doing throughout the pandemic, then that the meaning of cases is going to shift. But I still think there's there's a case for cases. They're, you know, they're, they represent transmission and transmission is how the virus is going to get to unvaccinated people. And they're the ones at most risk of hospitalization by far. Also, hospitalizations are a little harder to count. We tend to hear total hospitalization rather than incident like new hospitalizations on a daily basis. And so it's sort of mixed up with how long people are spending in hospital. And so I think having those case counts can help us understand how the virus is getting around whether it's likely to get into unvaccinated groups or populations or individuals, and then help us see a little sooner because you might test positive before you end up needing hospital care. So that leading indicator can be really helpful too. So I still think we need to be thinking about cases and really thinking about the virus and how it's moving around and whether it's spreading. And then, of course, hospitalizations are going to be something hopefully we have fewer of, but but it's still that million unvaccinated people is enough to cause potentially pressure on the healthcare system, given how transmissible the virus is. And knowing that we will never get, or so I guess I shouldn't say never, it's possible, but it, it, we're not going to get to 100% anytime soon, if ever, if for no other reason that at this point, children still can't be vaccinated. Is there a, a, a magic number or a set number that, that you can look at and say, when we reach this number of fully vaccinated British Columbians, that's the sea change? Yeah, we don't have a magic number, and that's just because we don't know the transmissibility of the virus, especially the Delta variant. We know it's high, um, we, but we don't know what it is in a reopened BC or reopened Canadian population. We don't fully know the efficacy of vaccines against the vi- viruses that we're going to have, but I think we should be aiming for above 90%. If we can aim for 90 95%, that will just protect us. Even with all the uncertainty we have, we know that gives such a stronger protection um, for the hospitals, for the health of the population, for transmission, and also for, you know, not giving the virus opportunities to make more variants in BC. We really don't want that. We want to we want to stop here. So it, it's hugely important. And I guess if I was going to say, like, let's have a target that it's really we're going to really try for and maybe not get there. Like maybe that should be 95. Maybe it should be 90. But it definitely we shouldn't get complacent at 80%. And it sounds like we're not getting complacent. They are really taking up, you know, we need to reach those people who are still not convinced. Uh, but to get to that number, then, if we have the goal of 95%, it looks like or sounds like that we need to get to that point, too, where the vaccine and uh, vaccines are approved and used for children. Yeah, I mean, we need to make sure that they're safe in kids and that it that it, the risks balance out. And I think we will have trial data as early as September. So it'll be interesting to see how that conversation plays out. You know, there's been a lot of discussion of kids, how transmissible they are. Again, we don't know that for the Delta variant. We know transmission is 
working a little differently with high viral loads. And the CDC has changed its recommendations for masking, even for vaccinated people because of that. So, I mean, I guess I would be on the side of if and when we know it's safe. Yes, we should be vaccinating younger people than 12. Of course, we need to know that that safety profile first. All right, Caroline, always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us again today. Absolutely. Where we're seeing transmission now is in pockets of people who are unimmunized or underimmunized. And that's the case right now um, in the uh, central Okanagan. Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about why some new restrictions or restrictions were brought back specifically to the central Okanagan. And joining me now is Cindy Fortin, the mayor of Peachland. Mayor Fortin, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, What is your reaction or your thoughts on these restrictions coming to the central Okanagan? Well, my first a feeling was just really disappointment and frustration. Um, we've had to deal with, everyone's had to deal with a lot of stressors. Um, year and a half of COVID, thinking we're coming out the other side, the heat waves, the wildfires, the drought, and now uh, the central Okanagan back to COVID restrictions again. Uh, I worry about how this is affecting the community and businesses. And uh, But having said that, I completely agree with it. And I think that we've really got to get a handle on this. Are you confident that this will help or that people will understand the reason for these restrictions, things such as the indoor areas wearing a mask again and be able to get those numbers down? Uh, Honestly, I think that I worry that the people between the 20 and 40 year uh, age range who aren't following the restrictions, who are putting their uh, entertainment and activities ahead of uh, the safety of the community, are not going to follow these restrictions. Uh, indoors, they'll have to, but we're also, they're asking, uh, the province is asking that they don't travel outside this region if they're not immunized. But I, I hope, I have to have faith that they'll, they'll heed the warning and that they'll uh, go along with the restrictions. But up until now, that's why we're here, is that there's been large groups that just aren't following uh, the uh, recommendations. And that does worry me. Um, it's only 20 to 40-year-olds uh, only are about 26% are vaccinated. And I really hope that changes. I really do, because um, people can't continue on like this. We've got to get ahead of this uh, uh, COVID and the Delta virus. Uh, variant. Are, do you see or have you witnessed then people in Peachland who just haven't been following the rules? Well, I've had people say to me, um, and I've heard people say that are in that age group, you know, they they just, um, they're not really concerned about getting COVID. <laughs> they think that they're uh, young and invincible. I remember feeling that way too when I was younger. And that even if they got it, they'd come through. But we had an emergency call just before the um, public announcement. And uh, the Premier and uh, Health Minister Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry and our local Interior Health um, uh, health Officer, Sue Pollock, Dr. Sue Pollock, was on the call with all the mayors in this region and the, the chair of the RDCO. And so I asked the question, what do you say to these people to convince them? And they say, well, it's they may not get as sick from it, but if they do get sick from it, they often have, they're the greatest number that have lingering effects like permanent lung damage. And uh, some people are talking about memory loss and that might not be permanent, but uh, difficulty concentrating and just lingering effects are not good for young people. Plus the fact that they're 
also potentially spreading it to people that will get sicker than they may. But uh, yeah, I do hear that. And it's frustrating for me to hear that. And I just don't know how to convince people any more than just keep getting the word out there and, and trying to get clinics in town and trying to make it easier for them to get immunized. Are you concerned we're just heading into a long weekend for a lot of people? Their plans would be to travel to the Okanagan, maybe people who live in the Okanagan traveling as well. Uh, the, the advice from Dr. Henry was asking people not come to the area if they're not fully immunized. Are you concerned with tourism and with uh, many people likely coming to the area this weekend? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right now, the, you can't see across the lake. There's so much smoke in the area, so that might deter people. And maybe they'll wear masks because the air quality is so bad right now. But uh, I am worried about that. There just seems to be a segment of the population that just wants to do what they want to do and are not thinking about others in the community and how they're affecting them. And also, though, this is hard on businesses, too. I mean, this we are tourism here. This, that's what we're all about. That's our main economic driver. So uh, it's six of one, half dozen of the other. You want them to stay away, but you want them to come. Personally, I'd like to see people just stay away for now. Um, we don't need this to get any worse. If we, Like I said earlier, if we want to get ahead of it, we got to take strong measures now. But yeah, I, I can see people coming. There have been a lot of people coming into Peachland and the central Okanagan over the last month. Uh, right, because under normal times, this would be the time when people are flocking there and there's so many reasons to come to that area. It's got to be tough, though, like you said, though, with businesses. And we heard a report uh, from Shelby Tom, the Global News in the Okanagan, talking about some businesses that are even closing down some days of the week because they don't have staff, they can't stay open. There's got to be, uh, I mean, the, the health part of it, one side. But like you said, the tourism industry and the hospitality industry must be hurting so much. They are. They are, and and that's just an additional stressor that they really don't need. But at the same time, you have to take health has got to be the primary um, concern, and you have to take that seriously. And what they need is to have financial support from the higher levels of government to to let them know that we're here to look after you. Do the, you're doing the right thing, and uh, we don't want to see you go under either. So so um, let's help out financially where we can, and that's where. When people say they believe this is a conspiracy, it's not real, and it's government control, I'm saying, well, what to what end? Really, I mean, we're just uh, finding that we're having economic trouble, an eco- economic downturn, and um, financial, uh, financially, um, it's costing a lot of money to keep um, individuals and, and businesses afloat. So I just... Um, That's my main thing is I just don't understand these uh, anti-vaxxers and people that think that this is some government conspiracy because there's no good that's coming out of this other than protecting people's health. I've never seen so many people fight against um, protecting their health and the health of their neighbours and their loved ones. It's perplexing. Uh, and we have seen, unfortunately, we've seen uh, some very vocal people in the Okanagan region. I mean, everywhere, but it seems like there have been a lot of reports of that in the Okanagan. Um, do you think, is there anything you think or you would like to see as far as making it easier for people to get vaccinated? Or do you think there is any work that could be done there? Well, Interior Health have been listening and they have come, well, to Peachland, for example. We're a small community and they've come three times on six days total and had a lot of people get immunized and asked that they would come on the weekends and 
for people who work during the week, and they did that. Uh, at this time, I just don't know what more there is to do. Uh, some areas are offering incentives, and that's great, unless this something like this happens again next time and everybody waits to get vaccinated so they can get entered into a contest or something. I hope that doesn't happen. But I just really urge people to to really think through what they're doing. I've been vaccinated. I've had two immunizations. I'm fine. Uh, I still don't feel 100% protected, though, because there is that little possibility that someone who's immunized could get it, even if they don't get really sick and pass it along to someone else. So I just really don't know. I'm, I'm at a loss. And uh, maybe we need to ask those people what it would take to get immunized. Uh, yeah, certainly a question I think a lot of people would like to ask. Uh, Mayor, just before we let you go, wanted to ask you as well, because there are so many things going on, as you mentioned. Uh, you talked a little bit about smoke from the wildfires. How are things there as far as the wildfire situation and the community dealing with that? Well, um, right now you, you can't see across the lake. <laughs> it's pretty smoky. Uh, I know that people are suffering from that. The um, Brenda Creek wildfire was the one that was the most serious for us, close to us. And we've been after uh, BC Hydro for many years to build a secondary power line and our only power line that connects us and uh, West Bank, uh, West Kelowna and w, uh, West Bank First Nation was in jeopardy for some time. But BC Wildfire Services got out there and they've done a fantastic job. And I, I hear that they're making some good progress. So that's good. Um, if the power went out, that would be awful because that's another stressor that people have had to deal with is the heat wave. And without electricity, um, not having air conditioning or even a fan on or being able to cook if you have an electric oven, um, it's just uh, would have been another serious problem, but um, BC Wildfire Service and our local firefighters and BC Hydro have been really good about getting on that fire. All right. So oh, sorry, we're go good ahead. for now. We're crossing our fingers. Please don't throw your cigarettes out the window. And um, we know this is just the beginning. So uh, we're asking people to conserve water too, because I'm on the uh, vice chair of the Okanagan Basin Water Board, and that's another concern. I also live near uh, Spawning Creek, Hardy Falls, and it's the lowest I've ever seen it. So, uh, yeah, lots going on, but we all just need to take a deep breath and live day to day and hour to hour and uh, not let uh, think of the the big picture too much and just try to get through it because we will come out the other side. I'm completely confident of that. It's just going to take a couple more months. All right. Well, let's make a note and we will talk to you again at that point. Mayor Fortin, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, as well as West Coast Environmental Law Association today, is raising the alarm bells, warning about the possibility that many more people were negatively impacted by the heat dome in June. Talking about people who were injured and the deaths associated with that heat wave. And joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about this is Andrew Gage, who's a staff lawyer with West Coast environmental law, as well as Julia Kidder, who is a communication specialist with West Coast Environmental Law. Thanks to both of you for coming on the program. Thank you for having us. Uh, nice I want to hear you. Great to, to have you both here. I wanted to start with Julia, uh, if we can, because Julia, you have a personal story about this, uh, about what you experienced during the heat dome. Yeah, I was um, uh, 
you know, was totally not expecting um, to uh, experience such severe heat stroke. Um, and I was in Ashcroft and, you know, in the Thompson Nicola Regional District, same area as Lytton, um, during the heat dome, uh, experiencing temperatures above 48 degrees Celsius. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was experiencing, you know, uh, auditory hallucinations and numbness and disorientation. Um, I nearly lost consciousness while I was driving um, and luckily pulled over uh, before before it was too late. Um, but I am... You know, I, I see this as a really, really urgent issue, uh, and I and I'm sure that there are many, many more people like me who experienced some sort of uh, either brain injury or trauma or uh, the you know the emotional effects of having uh, you know been been so at risk uh, during this heat wave. And uh, yeah, it's very scary, and I think that it's uh, it's this is there's no time to waste in educating uh, the public, and and the the government needs to be you know, uh, gathering the data on on who suffered from these injuries, how many people uh, suffered from heat-related injuries, um, and uh, so that we can plan better for for the next heat waves as they continue to happen because of climate change. Uh, and Andrew, I'll bring you in now as well. Is this part of the reason that there must be more people or that you believe there are more people like Julia who suffered this way or had this kind of reaction that we don't know about? Well, I mean, the province of BC has done work in recent years trying to understand how climate change will affect us. And in 2019, they they did a, a risk assessment that looked at heat waves as a possible, um, as a much more likely uh, event. And they were the ones that flagged that, that a much more moderate heat wave, we should expect about 100 deaths and over 1,000 injuries. And so when, you know, we obviously... We're very concerned by Julia's experience, uh, but we also then were looking back at what the province had said we should be expecting and go, why is nobody talking about uh, these injuries that we would expect to see associated with this? So we spoke to the Canadian Association for Physicians for the Environment, and they very much confirmed that, of course, there are many, many cases out there that we wouldn't even know about, and and, uh, where physicians are seeing them, but the province is not uh, there's no reporting on them, uh, so they're, they're sort of missing from certainly the public consciousness and in, in many cases from the official figures. Uh, in the release that you put out or your group put out earlier today, uh, it says that that you believe that the, the number may be closer to five to 6,000 heat-related injuries. Is that based, uh, based on what, what you just referenced? That's right. The fact that the, the province was estimating over 1,000 injuries for uh, uh, per 100 uh, deaths, uh, and the we now have an official figure from the coroner um, of, uh, sorry, I should have this at my fingertips, but 570 or so um, deaths due to the, the heat effects. So we would expect it to be roughly 10 times that for and, injuries. And what is the importance, do you think, at this point then, making sure we have that information, that we know the true number of deaths and heat-related injuries? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the figure, the, I think the importance is, is less having an official number and more knowing why people were suffering these impacts and what we can do to prevent that going forward. Uh, if, we, if we don't, I mean, the data isn't great that the coroner has been doing this work, and I think that the coroner will, coroner's office will come up with some specific recommendations on how to prevent people from dying, but that's half the story. Um, and we need to make sure that, we, that when people are suffering these, these huge impacts, some of which will be relatively minor, but some of which could be life-threatening or, or um, result in permanent uh, in injury um, and loss of function and stuff that we that we 
understand what's causing that and what we need to do to, in order to protect people from that. It, you know, it's helpful to know how many more people, um, were, were the regional variations, were, were the people who were getting injured but not dying in a different region from uh, people who were, were dying? Um, and, and is that because things were being done differently there or because the public has different uh, knowledge or access to different uh, information or infrastructure? Uh, we need to answer these questions so that we can keep us, uh, ourselves safe. And, and Julia, how are you now? Have you fully recovered? Um, I'm feeling much better this past week, uh, but for you know almost three weeks, I uh, was experiencing dizziness and you know instability, and still this sort of uh, you know just feeling like I've constantly just woken up from a nap, uh, and physically too, uh, where my you know my hands aren't gripping as strong as they should be. These these sort of things that you don't even know they would be an effect of, of heat stroke. Um, but I'm feeling much better now, and and I'm just thinking about people who are, you know, more vulnerable than I am um, and how they may have been affected, uh, you know, short or long term. Right. Because at what point did you know when this started to happen to you? Did you make the connection that it was happening because of the heat? Well, no, I I, I actually was, um, you know, I guess it, it had sort of been compounding over the course of three or four days. And uh, even after I had fainted, um, you know, after after this drive, uh, it wasn't until my, my cousin actually spoke to me on the phone um, and alerted to me that, you know, I didn't sound right and that uh, she, she's a paramedic and has just finished uh, medical school. And, and she said, you sound like you've suffered a, you know, a, a heat stroke and uh, have potentially a brain injury. And, and she took me to urgent care at UBC where I got a CT scan and, and uh, fluids uh, you know, IV fluids. And, and at that point, it wasn't until all, all the way, you know, down the line that I realized, wow, I've actually just suffered from something very traumatic. And my, my brain is, uh, you know, having a hard time with the, with this. (laughs) So, but, but it was because of my cousin calling me really and and checking in and and the fact that she happened to be in the area and, and drove me down from, you know, the interior down to Vancouver. Uh, to get me out of the heat. Wow. And we only have a couple minutes left. So, Andrew, I'll I'll bring you back in because we did certainly see some areas of Metro Vancouver, uh, even something like cooling stations. Some some areas had them, some didn't. Uh, We had the Premier who, although he walked back his comments after, kind of put it on citizens saying, well, you should have seen this coming. So what do you think we can learn or what information do we need then to learn and move forward from this? Yeah, I mean, we need to have the provincial government taking it more seriously than those comments suggested. Um, the province, as I said, in 2019, you know, predicted that heat waves like this are becoming more frequently. We now have additional data from the World Weather uh, Attribution Group saying that this heat wave was two degrees warmer and 150 times more likely due to climate change and that we should expect to see these every five to ten years by 2050. Um, and you know, so, so we're going to see a lot more of these. We need to have governments getting the data so that they understand who's affected and how to protect them and then putting plans in place. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on the program today. I appreciate your time. Thanks so Thank much, you for Jill. Having us. 
Well, you may have seen this footage on the global news, and maybe you've had a similar encounter yourself. Certainly, raccoons are everywhere. Well, depending on where you live, many parts of Metro Vancouver, though, in the province, it's not uncommon to see a raccoon. Thankfully, it is uncommon to have this kind of interaction that leaves both physical and emotional scars. Well, joining me now is Sonia Hartwell, whose mother was involved with an attack involving raccoons. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. You're welcome, Jill. It's uh, it's my pleasure to be able to uh, come on and, and kind of advocate for my mom and uh, just kind of let people know what's, what the situation's been for her. Yes. So, so what happened? So, I mean, this has been an ongoing issue for the last uh, three or four weeks. She uh, There's raccoons living in her next-door neighbor's garage, she um, had a bylaw officer come to her house and uh, say that there was a complaint from her. She has a, like a six-month-old dog. Uh, there was a barking complaint. They said, well, she, and she said, well, she's, they're barking um, at the, uh, the raccoons next door. And they said, she goes, you need to come, come and do something about it. Like, they keep coming into my yard. I'm worried about that they're going to attack her. And uh, they said, oh, there's nothing we can do. The raccoons were here before, before you were, ma'am. So this is their land, and this is uh, where they're going to be. So she was a bit frustrated with that and, you know, she pays for her dog license and she just kind of said, okay, I'll keep my dog inside, but, you know, something should be done about it. Uh, exactly a week later, um, she had her garage door, she's got an uh, in-home garage and she had her garage door open. The dog was kind of just going out to the garage to go uh, use the bathroom outside and uh, she heard it crying and she got up and ran to uh, see what was happening and the raccoon was in her garage dragging the dog out um, under the garage door and she managed to break it away where she hit it with a broom handle and uh, she managed to get the raccoon out of the garage and the dog was pretty pretty badly mauled like his, his back legs and his stomach was you know scratched she called the same bylaw officer and said you know this just happened to my dog uh you know you guys have to do something they said i'm sorry you know we don't do anything about raccoons um you need to call a pest control company uh, but they didn't give her a phone number. They didn't give her any sort of resources. They just said, you know, you're on your, basically you're on your own. Nothing we can do. And sorry to hear about your dog. Um, fast, this, this is all happening in the middle of the day. This is at two o'clock in the afternoon. Fast forward two more weeks. Um, so just on Friday, she was taking her dog out for a walk. But 1130 in the morning, when she came back into her yard, she opened up the front gate and, um, and there was three raccoons there. And she quickly picked up her dog and tried to get away. And that's when she was attacked by them. They were trying to get at the dog. They were trying, they were attacking her legs. And she's, she's very, very um, injured. And I, I've seen some video that looks like it's happening at the front gate. Is that mm-hmm. from, from that attack? That's from that attack, yeah. Right. So how is she now? Oh, she's in rough shape. She's doing daily, she's got terrible infection. She's doing daily IV antibiotics at the hospital. She has to be taken there. She can't walk. She can't drive. She's, you know, um, in a lot of pain. The the cuts are very, very deep. They couldn't do any stitching just due to how uh, severe they were. And because it was an animal bite that they're, you know, worried about bacteria and things. So they're basically just left open to heal and she's in excruciating pain. Uh, so, so you're, where are you focusing on, on kind of who's at fault here? Is it the neighbors for letting this continue and have the, having this happen on their property and spilling over to your mom's property? Or is it more the response or lack of response, I guess, from the city or from conservation? Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, I, I, right now I feel like it was due to the lack of response and the lack of um, resource assistance that wasn't provided to her. She's a senior. She's not able to use the Internet. I, I don't live with her. She lives alone. She's a widow. Um, you know, and she got this little puppy to k- keep her company through COVID and, you know, and, and just kind of um, feeling really helpless that uh, no one was able to help her even after many calls uh, to the city of Vancouver. You know, um, I understand that maybe it's not their jurisdiction, but they could have aided her with, with the proper resources um, of, of who she could call. I've been trying to uh, get a hold of, I've tried three different pest control companies. They've all told me that they're not able to come there and trap them, that they're, they're uh, babies with the mother, that they're not allowed to do that. I've left a message with wildlife rescue, no call back. I've left a message with critter care, no call back. I've called the city of Vancouver, um, like, you know, requesting somebody to call me. And um, when I followed up on my, I, I did that a few days ago when I followed up on my call today, they said, oh, it's still seven to 10 days out before I can receive a response. I think it's unacceptable. I don't think that, you know, as a, as a citizen of the city that, you know, my mom should feel scared to leave her, leave her house or even be in her house. The raccoons were inside. It's kind of you know, it's not just a, a pesky raccoon going through her garbage. This is intrusive and it's it's a safety concern. Right. So when they say it's seven to 10 days out, so if, if the city or if conservation could respond right away, what would you like them to do? I'd like them to remove the raccoons. I'd like them to uh, re- remove them from, from the area. I know it's not going to be the, 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 the fix because there's many raccoons, I'm sure, but to, I mean, especially these ones, to remove these from the area, and then as well as provide assistance to residents of how they can like mitigate the raccoon issue and what they can do to, you know, possibly prevent it and what the resource, like the, the, um, the resources that are out there to assist them because she's not able to to do that. She's a very private person. She didn't reach it. Like, I didn't know about this for a couple of days until after it happened. She wanted this, you know, she's very private. And it was me that really pushed the, uh, the, the issue. And I felt like, you know, we're not the only ones that are dealing with this situation. And I wouldn't want anybody else to, to have this happen um, because of how much pain and, and just, it's terrible. It's terrible. And if, if it was a young child, if it was, you know, um, like one of the grandkids, what would the city do then? If it was my dog, if my dog bit somebody, you know, the city would take action. I feel that this is a situation that the city should be helping. Yeah, because you're right. It's not just uh, raccoons in the garbage. I think most, Mm -hmm. if you have garbage cans, you've probably had a can knocked over by a raccoon at some point. This is much different than just a pesky raccoon Mm -hmm. that maybe stopped by during the night. Uh, So when pest control said, though, that they couldn't do anything because there are kits involved, there are babies involved, did you get the impression then, is it a matter of time they have to wait until the raccoon kits are older and then they might be able to do something? They really didn't give me much to go on. I mean, I at this point, I just want the raccoons removed. I'm I'm not looking for you know uh, time. I want them removed away from there because she's she's scared to go home right now. She's staying at um, my brother's house. He's caring for her, and but she's scared to go home. She's scared that she she's saying I have to get rid of my dog. I can't. Like, how am I going to take care of him? I can't take him outside. I'm scared to leave my house. Um, you know, she's she's been a resident of the city of Vancouver for 47 years. And, and, and she feels that she's just been, you know, um, she's just had no support. Uh, and what about the neighbors? Because uh, you mentioned that it looked like or it, it seemed like they were coming from, from the neighbors. Have they had any interactions or have they said anything about this? She's tried their rental homes, um, so the yards are not kept up. 
she's called the city again other times to, you know, because the grass is two feet tall and the bushes are growing over onto her side of the yard. I mean, my mom takes a lot of care and pride in her garden and in her yard and in her house, and she keeps it very neat and tidy. And on either side of her home, there's, you know, overgrown bushes. And, uh, you know, she's she's a senior. She lives on her own. She's a widow, um, you know she can't she can't do it all and she has reached out to the neighbors and she has reached out to the city and it's just you know it's always temporary fixes they go okay okay and they you know cut the lawn and then two months later back in the same situation Hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. at this point then too so you mentioned your your mom can't go back to her house or she's afraid Mm -hmm. to go back and be at Mm -hmm. her home staying with her son what happens next what do you do next I don't know. Right now I'm working on trying to find somebody that's going to come and remove these raccoons. Uh, I think that, you know, my mom's going to need some counseling. I think that, you know, this is, this is very traumatic experience for her. Um, and, you know, I would just like, a, I feel that potentially, you know, if there's any bit of, there was a very lack of compassion or care for my mom and just for the situation, I feel that the city's just kind of dismissed it. And, um, and I don't think it's fair as, as, you know, as residents of the city, we, I grew up here and, uh, and my mom's been here for many years. I just feel that, you know, we've just been dismissed and it's, it's not being taken as serious as it, as it is. Uh, right. When you hear that, uh, even say from the city, that wildlife issues are, are a provincial responsibility and then yeah. hearing that, it, I, I'm, I'm getting the impression that it's kind of they're responding to this as a one size fits all rule mm-hmm. when maybe there's more to this and there should perhaps be an exception. I, I think more should be done in, in, in when it comes to safety, the safety of the, of the citizens. Absolutely. I think more should be done. This is not just that raccoon that's going through the garbage and dumping it over. This is aggressive. It's aggressive. Um, and, uh, and there's a big safety concern there. All right. Well, so. let us know if there is an update or we'll check back with you uh, to see uh, if anything changes on this. Uh, and I hope your mom makes a full recovery. And thanks so much for joining thank us you. to talk about it. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I really appreciate the time that, you know, you guys have taken to really get this out there in the open. And, and I hope that, you know, this can circumvent a, a future issue with somebody else. I really don't, wouldn't want to see anybody getting injured, a child, any, anybody. Um, but I do think that more needs to be done in order to either prevent or relocate or just uh, resources, resource awareness needs to happen. All right. Sonia, thanks so much thank for you. your time. You're welcome. Well, I know a lot of people have been paying attention to uh, the Olympics. A bit later on this half hour, I'll play for you just some of the comments of a Maple Ridge Olympian returning home with some hardware around her neck. But right now, we are going to check in with Chris Gilbert. He's a freelance journalist, also a contributor. You likely recognize the name, a contributor on The Shift with Shane Hewitt here on CKNW. And Chris is on the line with us now. Chris, good afternoon to you. Oh, well, good morning from Tokyo, Jill. Thank you for having me. <laughs> good morning. What time is it there? Uh, it's 6.30 in the morning, so I'm sorry if I sounded a little bit crispy today. <laughs> no problem at all. We're just happy that we were able to make this work and you were up early to do this, uh, to do this with us. So how are things going on the ground there? Um, well, to be perfectly honest, Jill, it's kind of messed up. <laughs> I don't really have um, much good news to report. Uh, in the city, we had 3,800 cases yesterday. Um, for context, that's the highest ever in Tokyo. Uh, the number is going up by about 600 or more cases a day. The country had its all-time high, as well as Tokyo, of 10,000 cases yesterday. 
um, uh, in terms of mortalities, things are not quite so bad because the, the most vulnerable age groups have all been, uh, I think, about 80% vaccinated now, so they're safe. But the most concerning thing is that of people who are getting PCR tests, 18% of those PCR tests are returning positive. Usually, you're looking at about 5%. And then it went, it went up to 10 about last week, and now it's 18%. So almost one in every five, almost, PCR tests are coming back positive in Tokyo at the moment. And more than that, Jill, is that the state of emergency here, which has worked in the past, it worked in February to get numbers down, but it's not working anymore because with the Olympics on, people have effectively lost faith in the government, and the government is kind of absent because looking at the Olympics, there's no leadership. So the city is, and the country in general is effectively in free fall. Hmm. How are people responding then to the numbers? Because we know even before the games started, the fact that the games were going ahead during the fourth state of emergency and there was a fear that cases would go up. So what is the response like? You mean to the Olympics? To the, Olymp- the fact that the Olympics are going ahead and like you said, these case numbers are going up. Right, sure. So... I mean, the government itself is trumpeting the success of the Olympics at the moment, I think, which is confusing and mind-boggling to most people. Um, I've reported on the shift recently and on Global uh, News um, BC, in the, the morning television BC, that of uh, my travels around the city, I was surprised by the, the, the extent of the dichotomy between the Olympic bubble and uh, the rest of the country. Uh, the country really is locked out of its own Olympics. It's just a TV event here. Um, uh, but the, the government is saying, oh, you know, what a great job Japan is doing. We should all, this is the time to come together, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, people are saying, and these are some um, quotes of people who have been vox popped, is that it's sending mixed messages to many people in Tokyo. It's making it hard for us to take the situation seriously, um, that we should, you know, give up our summer. We should stay at home. We uh, should continue to do the stuff that we've been doing for a year and a half when the government is allowing an event of this size to continue. Um, Others are also uh, confused that this was allowed to happen at all without a higher percentage of the population vaccinated um, and maybe, you know, more of the game's uh, officials and athletes are vaccinated. Um, and most, especially those in their 20s by recent polls, are finding that um, they just don't care anymore. Um, a, a lot of the businesses are now flate, uh, sorry, flouting the set of emergency rules. Um, you're not allowed to really serve alcohol, but people, you know, businesses and izakayas and bars are, you know, just open as normal a, a lot of the time. The Olympics effectively has, ga- has gaslighted people. Um, there's not really any leadership at the moment here in Tokyo. And I think the thing for me, Jill, is that when I look around at the reporting, um, the reporters here who are covering the Olympics it's sort of treated like, you know, reporters during the Iraq war. They're shuttled around from event to event. They're shown, you know, the good parts of it. They're showing the glory and, and the Olympics and the sporting side of it. But if you look at the news, there's not really that much coverage of the complete crisis um, that the city, that the, the games is in at the moment. And it, the, the, the juxtaposition of those two things, I think, doesn't really make much sense to most people. 
Yeah, and I suppose we've seen that with other Olympics as well, not specific to the pandemic, but certainly we see Olympics hosted in China and people are willing to turn a blind eye to human rights abuses. We see it in countries where certainly there have been things to question, but they do get tend to be put on hold for whatever reason when the games come to town. Uh, when you look at the, the number of cases, when you look at what's happening in Tokyo, I had read something that it was, like you said, people weren't really following the rules. There weren't any really uh, there was no consequence for not doing that is that the case do you think that people are going out people have relaxed their the rules even though they're not supposed to and that's what's leading to this increase in cases yeah i mean i think it's uh both sides of the of the olympic fence so if you look at the uh, olympic bubble itself there it does seem to be more porous um as uh, motoko rich a, a journalist here said um that people inside the olympic bubble apparently can just go out um you know and maybe not so much the athletes but the the officials and stuff you know that the, the bubble is leaking um but i don't think that, that is that is the risk to the community it's not really the the cases in the or the you know 100 200 cases inside the bubble that's making things dangerous it is uh just the absolute fatigue uh in the community um who i think have just uh been opposed to the olympics the entire time really, especially since the postponement from last year, who feel like the government has not listened to them, um, who have been told to lock down again by the government, um, and people have just been asking, well, for what? For you? No, I don't think so, because uh, you are holding this event that nobody wants. And there's a, the chair of the central government's coronavirus subcommittee, his name is uh, Shigeru Omi, he said, the greatest danger now is that the severity of the current situation isn't being communicated to the public. If that sense of urgency isn't conveyed sufficiently, the virus is going to spread further and be a burden on the, on the uh, healthcare system and will become increasingly severe. Now, that means there's no leadership. And I think the only leadership that can be done now, the only action that can be done now, in my opinion, I think that the, that the public will accept and take as uh, a gesture that the government does care about them and is taking this seriously and doesn't just cancel the Olympics, is canceling the Olympics. That I think the Japanese people have effectively lost faith in the government uh, during the pandemic while the Olympics is happening. They're on their own. And there is nothing the government can do or say at this point that won't be seen as a huge hypocrisy and double standard, apart from ending the games and returning their focus and their resources and their efforts back onto the people of Japan. And I mean, it's very unlikely uh, that that would happen. So on of the course. other, yeah, of course, I mean, it's not going to happen. We know that. Yeah. So is it the idea then, and that'll be a strange transition, won't it, when the games end? And then what happens? You go back to what how life was before and just go back to that? Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, we're looking to our friends overseas at the moment because, you know, I've got my second shot of Moderna on Monday. Um, I've had a close contact just yesterday that I found out through, through work so I have to go get a PCR test. So we're still in that, that stage where things are fizzling out. And we're looking at our friends in, uh, back in BC and in America and other countries where um, the vaccination rates are higher to kind of get a, a, some crystal ball gazing of how things are going to go. Because right now for us, we're in the middle of the vaccination rollout and we still have that no end in sight feeling. Um, so maybe you can answer that question better than me, Joel, because we we have no idea what is going to happen. It is everything to this point has been Olympics, 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 Olympics. So what once the um, 
the Olympics is over, we have no idea what the future looks like, to be honest. Well, hopefully we can check in with you again, Chris, and get a better idea of that and get you to bring us up to date on that for sure. But we'll leave it there for now. Thank you again so much for getting up early and for doing this with us with the time change. I also understand a belated happy birthday is in order. Oh, well, thank you very much. I had a lovely birthday and I'm, I'm sorry to be so bleak on a, on a, a lovely afternoon in, in British Columbia. But, uh, the, you know, that's what's going on. And thank you again for having me.